Hi, I'm Nicole. Hi, Susan. I'm uh, G.Y. here. Hi, Susan. This is me here. Hi. Hi, Susan. So, hi, Susan. Hello, hello. Hi, Susan. And hello to you, the listeners. My name is Joel, and welcome back to another episode of the Enneagram Journey podcast with the aforementioned Suzanne Stabile. Today's episode is a special Q&A with our new friends from Singapore. At the beginning of the pandemic, a group of individuals started facilitating LTM's Enneagram Journey curriculum, and then it just kept growing from there. New groups started and new groups from that. We were thrilled to have the opportunity to meet with them via Zoom and chat recently. If after listening, you think to yourself, I would love to start an Enneagram Journey curriculum group, whether it's one that meets in person or one that meets online. Visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash curriculum and go from there. You'll find the links to purchase curriculum guides and for all 12 of Suzanne's teaching videos. It's a great way to meet and talk with other individuals interested in the Enneagram and spiritual development. And now without further ado, today's episode. the old applause button does it so work yeah <laughs> hi everyone is it 10 a.m there yep it's 10 a.m here awesome. on a friday morning okay it's and it's nine o'clock thursday night here oh hi susan hello this is hi. so great we're really excited. The community has really been looking forward to this. I'm really and excited too. I'm so honored. And um, we talk about y'all a lot. It, when I'm feeling yeah. really down, Joel says, now don't be down, mom. You're really hot in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You really, really are. <laughs> yeah. And and I think it feels like we are, we are seeing a celebrity now because you traveled with us for 12 weeks. Yeah, you know, and for some of the facilitators, I mean, we've done it a few, a few, a few rounds. Sure. So it's more than twelve weeks for some of us. So we are we are looking at you and your life for us in Singapore, and we are we're all squealing <laughs> in our hearts. I'm doing a little squealing in my own heart here. Thank you so much for making the time. Sure. I mean, it's really special for us. When did y'all do the first group? How long ago was that? April 2020. April. So it was right at the beginning of the pandemic for us. Uh, we were just going into our first, um, well, what they call what they call a lockdown elsewhere. We call it a circuit breaker here, mm. you know, because we're very very technical about things. Circuit breaker. So um, a lot of people signed up, and what we heard was, you know, because they said, "Oh, you know, we've got nothing to do, so we can't go out. We can't be with friends. So well, fine." But uh, it was from that. Um, from that first cohort, uh, you know, the word got out and people started signing up. Other people started starting their own learning groups as well with your curriculum. So um, this really is the product of not just, you know, uh, myself and Cynthia, but also a number of other learning group facilitators. Mm -hmm. Most of them are here today. So you get to say hi to them in a bit. Okay. All right. It's 10.05. I'd like to just open up this time. Thank you so much for coming. A lot of gratitude for everybody who's made it. Uh, I know it's a working day. I know some of you moved certain things so that you could be here. Thank you very much. Round of applause for you guys. Uh, and thank you so much to Team Stabil, to Joel. Is it Joel or Joel? Joel. 
But Joe, yeah, right. answer to all of it. Uh, in Singapore, most people who spell their name that way are called Joel. So okay. I just want to make sure. So Joel and Suzanne. Hi. Hi. And I think there was somebody else beside you, right, Suzanne? Yeah. Joe's here. Lean in, in oh, here for a hi, minute. Oh, hi, Joel. Hi. I see his arm. Okay, now I see There the he is. Hi. <laughs> so hello to Team Stabil. Thank you so much for making this happen. It's been more than a year in the making. And uh, I know you, you're very, very busy and you, I've been seeing a lot of your uh, a lot of your stuff online. You know, you've got a lot of uh, podcasts and you've got other classes to run and, you know, and thank you so much for making the time for the Singapore cohorts. Yay. Um, I'd also like to take the time to introduce the some of the facilitators. So just to give a little bit of a background, this was started, uh, was initiated by Cynthia. Uh, Unfortunately, she couldn't make it today, but uh, she sends her regards and she's very excited about this. So Cynthia was the one who first invited me to uh, start, you know, one of the learning groups. And I was like, OK, sure. And um, and then from those cohorts, you know, some other some others started. So we have some of the facilitators here. We have let's see, we have Boo. Is Boo here? Boo, could you wave? Right. Boo's waving right now. And we have Nick and Shrehan. Nick and Shahan, do you mind saying hi? Do you mind waving? Hi guys. Hello, hello. Hello. There you are. And we also have Sherry, Sherry Lynn. Is Sherry Lynn here yet? Yeah, I'm here, but I just can't turn on my camera. Hello. Hello. Hi. Okay, fantastic. All right. Uh, all right. So today we are going to uh, we are meeting uh, we are meeting uh, Suzanne and team for for a QA. I'd also like to say that uh, there have been a lot of very, very interesting questions. I've been looking at the RSVP Google form that we sent out. They're very, very interesting questions. Um, you know, some of them are on their own personal development. Some of them are on uh, very specific questions for Suzanne uh, on your own development and your own experience of the Enneagram. The tools are very excited. They're very asking very specific two questions, you know, and they're like really, you know, wanting to deep, deep, deep deep into you know who you are um i also know from joel that uh you have expressed interest in how understanding how the enneagram shows up differently in singapore in the singapore context and this is definitely something we can go into there have been offline discussions where people are talking about typing countries and you know like figuring out you know why certain people show up different ways and uh different cultures and even different uh family units so I think that's something uh, that we can definitely open up in the second half. Um, without further ado, I would like to open up the room to questions. Um, but before we do that, uh, Suzanne, would you like to say anything? Well, I'm, I'm um, honored by your commitment to doing the work you've done that led to us being here for this conversation. I appreciate the sacrifices that you made um, so that we could make this work with me not being up too late at night. What happens to me is if I get tired, then I uh, generally get um, more fun, but less helpful. <laughs> so I'm glad that we're um, able to find a time that works for both of us. I said earlier, but all of you might not have been on, we're excited about the groups that you have and the interests that you have. And of course, we're excited about what we might be able to offer you, but also what we can learn from you. We know that we would like to have a much deeper understanding 
of the Enneagram in cultures other than ours. And there's just a lot of ongoing conversation for the future about that, I hope. All right. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Sure. Um, all right. So let's open up the time to, uh, to the room. Uh, if you'd like, if you have a question, please jump in, just turn on your mic and just uh, ask your question. We also have uh, we also have some of the facils who have some uh, questions and might uh, just jump in with their own very specific questions uh, as facilitators or to represent some of the people who may not have been able to make it today. So uh, and Joel will be moderating as well the Q and A. So yay, let's start. Okay, I don't want to waste time. So hi, Suzanne, hi. I'm Matu. I'm Felicia. I'm so so stoked to be here. And um, yeah, so I'm a fellow too, and we've got our group of twos. And like Ami said, we've got so many questions for you because you're a two. Um, so just to start off, um, yeah, I can see you laughing at me, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always like hyper and higher energy. <laughs> okay, so, so with the twos group, we realize that we actually hold our breath a lot. And we also get very easily startled. Like um, if I'm doing something and my kids are like, mommy, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, whoa, you know? And, and, and we realize that it's a group, um, it's a group, I mean, like, it's a two thing, at least for us. So we're also wondering if you have noticed this about yourself, that you get easily startled. Yeah, and if you hold your breath, and if you know why. So we're trying to figure out why. Is this, like, back to a trauma thing? Yeah. So just yeah. curious. Um, I don't hold my breath, but I do clench my fists a lot. And I think it's probably the same bodily response. I think we're responding to the same things, probably. Uh, in terms of being startled or clenching my fist uh, or you holding your breath, I think it has to do with the fact that we are always picking up on the feelings of everyone around us. And so if there is an unexpected sound, then we feel that someone has been hurt or has a problem or that there is something we need to attend to in order to take care of the people around us. Oh, wow. That's so good. Okay. Thank you so much. That's sure. so good. That makes sure. it so clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. You guys better ask your questions. If not, I have a whole list. Okay. So <laughs> I have to, I have to as a fellow too. I'll go next. Okay. Felicia. Uh, Hi, hi, Suzanne. Uh, thanks for making time. Uh, I'm sure. a fellow too as well. And uh, my question would be, um, how can we as fellow to or just or myself especially uh, to elevate our repair center of uh, intelligence mm -hmm. especially uh, the thinking aspect yeah thank you you're so welcome so the first thing I want you to be aware of is that we're actually thinking all the time the problem is that we think about most things in the context of relationships and so it's difficult for us to think about things in abstract form or to think about uh, ideas that are not our own or that come from people we don't know. We try to personalize everything. And so the first thing we need to do to be able to bring up thinking is to depersonalize, to, to limit, to boundary ourselves around needing to personalize all of the thinking that we need to do. And the second thing I think that's helpful in terms of bringing up thinking is practicing uh, doing things that require thinking that you can't relate to emotionally. And that sounds just like the first thing, but it's a little different. So, for example, um, 
I love to read, but I like to read memoirs because I like people, and those are stories about people. So I have learned to increase my ability to think well by reading books that are more centered around ideas or, th- or other thinking as opposed to the stories that make up people's lives. Although, I of course think the stories that make up our lives are our, our first uh, opportunity for a meaningful exchange with one another. And I've also found it helpful to occasionally read somebody that I know I disagree with. The most important thing is that I've, I've asked the people around me, so that would include our children. We have four adult children, and Joe and Laura, who works with us, people I'm with a lot. When I'm um, overly emotional, and that doesn't mean crying or, or uh, displaying some kind of emotion, but it means when I'm connected to things only on a feeling level, then I've asked them to respectfully ask me what I'm thinking or what I think about that thing. So if I share feelings with Joe, if I'm sad or hurt or something, then he knows that what I need is for him to ask me to think about it instead of just feel what I'm feeling. So I I think that's particularly helpful I also think that it's important that we not make up stuff. You know, twos are really good at making up stories in our heads that end up not being the truth at all. So sometimes I make up that someone is unhappy with me or that they uh, are don't like me or that they're mad at me. And then as soon as I encounter them, I find out that that's not true. I just made all of that up. Is that true for the stance? I think it is true for the whole stance. So I think that's true for ones, twos, and sixes. So, so what we're trying to, to do is think productively, not think more. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. It's hard. It's, it's not a fun answer. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Suzanne. Well, I just wanted to have a teaching moment right then because I, I could have made up because there was no immediate response that that wasn't an answer that you liked. And then I could go with, so maybe you don't like me now that I gave that answer. And then I could go with, all right, well, what can I do to make everybody like me? You see all that unproductive thinking that happens in twos? And it's based on assumptions that came from perception, not from feelings. And certainly not from thinking, but just made up stuff. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. This is me here. Hi, I have a question on, um, uh, my daughter is a seven uh, and uh, her fiance is a eight and both of them uh, uh, has a feeling um, as a repressed. So uh, it definitely uh, poses problem in their relationship. So I want to check, how do you help people who have uh, two people um, with repressed feeling? Um, uh, how to actually uh, help them. You know, I think it starts with a willingness to be vulnerable uh, in a limited way. You can't just go from being 
feeling repressed to having some equality in terms of feelings with the other two centers. And, and one of the things I want to say to set the table, and then I'll continue to talk about this, is that, you know, if you are doing repressed and you don't do stuff that you need to be doing, everybody knows it. Like you get in trouble for not doing your part, right? And if you're feeling repressed, other people know that feelings, you don't share feelings very often. If you're thinking repressed, you can get away with that for a long time. So ones, twos, and sixes have a little bit of an easier journey here than the other two stances do. In terms of bringing up feeling in their relationship with one another and in their relationships with others, they're going to have to do uh, some work around uh, things that are outside of their control. Sevens are going to have to expand their... Uh, range of feelings from positive feelings to include some negative feelings. You know, negative feelings have as much to teach us as positive feelings do. It's just that sevens can reframe things so quickly they don't stay with a situation long enough sometimes to express their feelings effectively. And eights need to be mindful of the fact that lust for, for them is really about excess. It's about passion. And passion is one aspect of feelings, but that's all it is. It doesn't cover a range of feelings. So I would suggest to them as a couple that they each work on feelings with a friend or with a colleague or a cousin or somebody else and then bring what they learn back to their relationship instead of putting all the pressure on their relationship to be more feeling. It's, that's very hard. Neither number likes to be vulnerable, so that's, a, that's just a hurdle they have to cross. And I, I think... Um, it also helps to be able to talk about a feeling or think about a feeling without labeling it a feeling. You know, if, if a, a seven says, I think I'm having a feeling, well, then they got to let go of the thinking and have the feeling. Does that make sense? And I shared recently with someone, you talk about verbal processing for one, twos, and sixes mm-hmm. being about repressed thinking. For me as a seven, and the person I was talking to is an eight, that we verbally process feelings. Like it takes us a long time to realize that they are feelings. We're verbally processing to get to the fact that it's to the feeling. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Thank you. You're so welcome. Hi, Susan. I'm uh, Chiwai here. Hi. I have a question for seven as well. So, uh, as a seven, myself, I feel I found that you know I have a short attention span, and also always wanting to move on to the next uh interesting thing, and uh, every time I pick up like a, a new activity that means that may be interesting at this point in time, I will get in, I'll be indulging in it uh for very very long hours, until at this point in time where I find that okay it's it's boring and I move on to next. Right. Right. So so for for this kind of situation, how how do we get ourselves to uh you know improve on the focus? Right, so that we, we don't uh, face so much of a, a backlash from all this uh, excessive indulgence. Sure. 
Joel, you want to answer that before I do? <laughs> You'll do a more articulate job of it. <laughs> I know for me, it's having something, a visual of what needs to be done, like written down on a bulletin board or reminders on my phone or a list somewhere on the table of, hey, all these things also have to be done. You can't get lost in this. Or because then when I start adding to that list and not knocking mm-hmm. things off, yeah. then that's when it's going to be trouble. And then moving to that one space is going to handle it automatically, unfortunately, yeah. but not in a most likely not in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. Uh, for all three sevens and eights, you need to get the feeling wheel. It's an app you can get for your phone. It's a feeling wheel because you don't name your feelings well. And if you put that app on your phone, then you will be able to kind of have a tutor help you name what you're experiencing so you can share a feeling with somebody else. All right, now back to how you're going to behave yourself. (laughs) So here's the thing. Um, Every yes that you say to your fun thing that you're spending a lot of time on or that you're giving a lot of hours to means that you're saying no to something else. Or it means that you're saying no to someone else. And so you have to be careful with how much yes you feel like you have to give to your newest interest. And I think it's very difficult for any of us to boundary ourselves. It's just hard. And some numbers just automatically have boundaries. Sevens don't. Twos don't. Like, we don't have them. And so you're going to have to kind of step outside of yourself and, and look at if, if you made a schedule for the week for, for seven days and you divided it into morning, afternoon, and evening, then how much of that schedule would it be appropriate to give to your new interest? And then let yourself do that so that you can enjoy it and be free to enjoy it in that time, but stick to the boundaries of the appropriate amount. It's hard. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. It's hard to be every number uh, honest. It's just hard. And the rest of the numbers aren't having as much fun as you are. So, you know, celebrate that. Hi, I'm Nicole. I'm an eight. Um, I... I'm wondering, okay, so I've been taking a journey with the idea or the concept of innocence, and it's really hard for my brain to wrap around. I was wondering if you could share more about what that is to you or like how you conceive of it. Yeah. Sure. I think for every eight I've ever had a conversation with, innocence was lost when they were young. And by that, I mean they ended up having to take some responsibility as an older sibling or as um, a member of a big family where generations were living together and uh, elders needed help or um, as an appointed mature person in school to kind of look out for others. And every time we ask an eight 
who usually presents as an old soul when they're young, to do some adult role, they lose part of their innocence. And then it takes time and a lot of understanding to be able to reconnect with innocence, reconnect with not feeling responsible for everybody and for everything. And responsibility for eights is completely different than it is for twos. We're feeling other people's feelings, and we feel like we need to care for them. That's not taking responsibility for how something turns out or for the direction that something takes. And so what what happens, and now I don't know if this is culturally true, so I'd love for us to talk about that. But what happens in America is that we really like male eights because they're strong and quick and smart and they pop up and lead well. But female eights, we don't see with such affection. We uh, literally hear female eights are often just by their peers referred to as a bitch. And the problem with all of that is that we want eights to be eights until we don't. And then we don't want eights to be eights until we do want them to be an eight, until we want them to lead us out of a problem or, or step up and show us the way to do something. I, I think it's the most misunderstood number for both male and female eights. And I would love to know if you think there is a, a difference in respect and appreciation for uh, male eights and female eights in Singapore. Um, I, I would say, yeah, uh, at least in my own personal experience, it's a bit similar. Um, definitely there's like a kind of respect or, or at least a greater acceptance of the male eight yeah. from my standpoint. Um, and, and some, and I, I suppose because there's an idea of like being slightly more demure as a, as a lady or more perhaps more passive um and I'm here like opening the door <laughs> like moving forward I'm here doing my things getting the job done um and and you know being told to you know maybe um like do less or be like sit smaller um yeah yeah so there is that oscillation that I really do relate to and and I've definitely been called a a, a bitch and been really misunderstood um I think as a as a woman as well, yeah. So I'm sorry. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think I really relate to that. Yeah, and I think I think what everybody else has to hear, that's listening to you and me talk, is that when somebody tells you to be smaller, they're telling you to stop being yourself. That's just not a fair request for us to ask of anybody. Could you just stop being you? <laughs> It's like, no, 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 I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's very tricky. And I'll tell you something else I think about eights, um, threes, sevens, and eights, actually. I think you think faster than the rest of us do. And your impatience with our ability to think as fast as you do is sometimes conveyed maybe when you don't mean for it to be. Like, I feel like aggressive numbers are impatient with me a lot. I think they're impatient with my verbal processing. 
I feel like they're kind of impatient with me, kind of wrapping my head around something. It, and it's not that you're smarter than we are. You just think faster. So sometimes it will help you relationally to just slow down and still be you rather than trying to change who you are. Just be you on slow motion, maybe. Thank you. You're welcome. Can you hear me? Okay, sorry. Um, I just a short introduction about myself. Uh-huh. Um, I'm Yichin, and I'm a counselor. New new counselor. I just started. Like, I've around one year of experience, uh-huh. and I'm a type five. So uh, head stands, uh, withdrawing stands, and very head-oriented. So uh, recently, I've been finding it harder and harder to connect with my clients. Sometimes I get lost in my thoughts. So would you have any advice that are custom-tailored to type 5 um, to better connect with uh, people? Yeah. You know, I think one of the the most challenging things for any of us is to be present to the present moment. It's just very, very hard to do. And I think it's particularly hard when you are with people who have already told you what you need to know to respond to, and then they keep telling you things. I think that makes it hard to know what to choose and how to stay with that. And so I would encourage you to kind of have some practice that brings you back. You know, like sometimes I'll be uh, listening to somebody and I'll think, all of a sudden, I'll think, oh my, I'm thinking about something else and I don't even know what you just said. And so I think we have to learn to catch ourselves when we start to veer away rather than when we're already somewhere else. So just observe yourself. You know, self-observation is the ticket for all of us to be healthier and wiser, I think, but certainly healthier in our number. So observe yourself so that you can learn when your mind starts to wander. And then pay attention to that so that you can bring yourself back before you go too far. Because once your mind wanders, then your mind starts thinking about how could you do that? You're a therapist, you're here, you need to handle this thing, and here you are not paying attention. And then that's just another whole head trip. Yep, thanks. You're welcome. It's just that I I just finished a session with a client who's very traumatized. Yeah. And it's hard to get back into my own headspace. Okay, let me help you with that. So, you know, I travel all over the country to teach, and uh, people tell me stories of their lives, and they're often very traumatic. And as a two, I used to just bring all of those stories home with me because I didn't know what to do with them. You know, and then I was worried about people who are 800 miles away who I probably won't ever talk to again. And I don't have the space, the emotional space to do that and be present for the next thing. 
So I would encourage you to be sure that you schedule time between your appointments. Don't put them back to back. If you do a one-hour appointment or 50 minutes is what it normally is here, but let's just for to make it easier. If you do a one-hour appointment, then you could do your first afternoon appointment from 1 to 2. But your next afternoon appointment would have to be to 2.15 to 3.15, the next 3.30 to 4.30, you see? So that you have some room between, because you can't carry all of people's pain. You can't do it. And you know that you can't fix it for them in an hour. So that leaves you with that dilemma. What I've learned to do that you might do at the end of your day or at the end of your appointments for a day is that Joe, my husband, is a, a pastor. And he created a, a little ritual for me so that I could do it right as I'm leaving my hotel room in a city where we are, where I'm coming home, so that I can leave what I cannot do anything about there in that space and trust that the Holy One will in some way uh, pick up what I can't carry. And I, I think, you know, you wouldn't be a good therapist if you weren't compassionate and if you weren't dialed into what other people feel. And you won't be a therapist for very long if you don't find a way to give them what you have to offer in that time and then give yourself some space to take care of you and then see another client. It's very challenging to listen to somebody else's pain. So I'll, I'll be thinking about you. Thank you. You're welcome. Make sure you have somebody that you're talking to, you know, that you're saying, man, this is hard. A lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Hi, Suzanne. Sophia here. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this for us. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm also a two and I have two questions. Okay. <laughs> My first question, are there less male tools? Um, somehow that, that seems to be the experience here. And I'm also wondering, is it because like the helper has more of a feminine energy? Like, you know, male, how male aids are more accepted. Mm -hmm. And uh, my second question is, um, can subtypes change or shift? And how can I do that? Yeah. Thank you. All, right. All right. Well, that's 30 minutes worth, so I better get started. So uh, let's start with this. I don't know if there are more or, or fewer male twos, but I know that in my culture, Male twos are um, not real excited to identify their number for other people for exactly the reasons you said. They may know that they're twos on the Enneagram, but it is um, more um, that caregiving is culturally for us more of a feminine side. I think we're beginning to get away from uh, what is manly and what is feminine and more toward what is human. And I think uh, male twos often know that they're twos and they operate in the world as twos, but they watch themselves in public so that they're not perceived as too soft, too helpful, too, you know, too those kinds of things. 
I don't know if there are more or less. I don't know here either if there are uh, more or fewer male twos. I just know that they're not as eager to talk about it. Now, let me tell you the other thing, though. Um, If I, I think it's a generational thing also. So I'm 70. If I did a women's retreat for women who are in their 50s, 60s, early 70s, and I did a Know Your Number workshop, the whole thing, probably 35 or 40% of the women in that generation would identify as twos because those were the roles that we've had in American culture for our ages growing up. So my age is the first age where women started kind of breaking the ceiling and doing jobs that men had done previously, right? And the reality is that a lot of women my age who identify as twos in my culture are actually sixes. They're not twos. And so that would skew our concern about whether or not there are fewer male twos than female twos because I think there are fewer females who are twos than claim to be a two. I think a lot of those women are sixes. Yes. Okay. Yes, All right, here's your next question. Am I clear that you're asking me if, if your subtype changes? Yes. Yes, can it, it be, be shifted? Yes, it does change. I don't think you can change it. You can do things that will make it possible for it to shift. But let me just tell you my story of mind shifting. I was always social dominant, sexual next, and then self-preserving. And my husband, Joe, who I adore, also social dominant, sexual, next, and then self-preserving. And you realize when I talk about it that way, I'm talking about the fact that we always have all three, but we have to view them as layers of a cake. And so the one that's dominant is a bigger layer of the cake than the other two. So for most of my life, I was big layer, big layer, social. Pretty big layer, but not as big, sexual. Little tiny layer, self-preserving. Same for Joe. Uh, I was teaching one day in another city. My daughters happened to be traveling with me on that trip. It's a four-hour drive from there to Dallas. And one of my daughters walked up to on stage. I thought something's really wrong. And she came straight to me and said, Daddy's had a heart attack, and we're headed home. So I went straight to the car. They got my stuff together and brought it to the car, and we started driving back to Dallas. And between Joey coming to the podium and saying, Daddy's had a heart attack, and we're leaving right now, and me getting to Joe's hospital room and being with him and knowing that he was okay, I changed from social dominant to sexual dominant. And it was such a dramatic change in our relationship that we ended up getting a, a therapist to help us for a while because I was driving Joe crazy. Like I was watching him every second and I wanted to look at him and he, I didn't want him to go to work and he, we'd be watching a movie together at home and I was watching him while he was watching the movie and he would say, watch the movie. <laughs> One day I couldn't find him in the house anywhere and so I called his name and I said, where are you? And he said, I'm upstairs. 
And I said, what are you doing up there? And he said, I'm taking a break from you. I just have to have a break. So what I'm saying to you is, yes, your subtype can change. It will likely not be because you want it to. But we can all learn to balance our subtypes. And it's hard, hard, hard work. But we can do it. So here's an example. You know, I, I don't know. I hope that I'm saying things that, that translate well culture to culture. Because y'all have put so much effort into being in this time with me. I'm so sorry ahead of time if I'm not doing that. But what I would suggest is that people my age and my culture um, are less self-preserving than our parents were, just as a whole. So there are a lot of things that feed into these three layers of the cake, but all Enneagram work is about balance. We have to balance thinking, feeling, and doing. We have to balance social, sexual, and self-preserving. It's all about trying to keep everything kind of level by giving our attention to the things that we uh, that are the hardest for us or that are the most awkward for us. Yes. Yes, totally. So it doesn't mean it doesn't mean now if you're if your uh, uh, subtype changes that you automatically have to go to therapy. It just meant that Joe and I had to because I love him so deeply and it had never occurred to me that he might have a heart attack. I just the thought never crossed my mind. And that was years ago, and he's healthy and whole, and his heart is great. But that shift occurred, and I, I couldn't shift it back without some help looking at my behavior and trying to make it work better. Got it. Thank you so Good. much, Suzanne. Hi, Suzanne. I'm Debbie. So I wanted to ask you a question about force, actually. Okay. So I, I think uh, my question is like about force and the traditional idea of productivity. So I think that's still a struggle. So of course, you know, I think when we go into the one path, everybody likes us, but then my productivity in some other uh, area suffers, whether it's with my family or my friends or myself. So it's still kind of a challenge for me, even though I try to put in the tools and all that to keep up with like the traditional ideas of productivity. So I don't know if you have advice or comfort <laughs> for the force. I sure hope I do because I, I want to help. Um, you know, I, I think it is true for all of the people that I've encountered in my lifetime. And that's a lot. If, if you do the thing that you don't want to do first, it leaves you so much room to do the things that you do want to do. So that's number one. And number two, if you can learn to find beauty in what's ordinary, then it will give itself to you, I think. So let me give you an example. I have a very good friend who is a portrait painter, and she lives in uh, Austin, Texas, which is a very trendy city. And, and by portraits, I mean she paints huge paintings. And she sees everything, I'm sure, like you do in terms of texture and color. And it's either flat or it's textured. It either is vibrant or it's dull. And um, she heard me tell 
another four that I thought she needed to go shopping at the grocery store that was the least beautiful display of fruit and vegetables and all of that to stop going to the beautiful grocery store and go to an ordinary grocery store. And she, my friend heard me say that to somebody else, so she chose to try it. So she started going to an ordinary store in Austin instead of a really trendy, beautiful store for buying food. And what she discovered there was the texture and beauty of the difference in people while she was there. So she learned that she could shop there and get apples that they only had two kinds instead of seven, but she was fascinated by the difference in all of the people who were there. So I think you have to look for what holds your interest while doing the things that don't. Does that make sense? Instead of just punishing yourself to try to get through things that don't hold any interest. So let's have another example. If you like just a thing that people need to do is make the bed. Maybe that's no problem for you. Lots of fours just don't see a reason to do it. So if, if we use that as an example, you're always going to hate making the bed perhaps, but have beautiful sheets or a beautiful cover or beautiful pillows on the bed so that you're enhancing what is normally mundane for you. And, you know, I, I don't know if, if you heard my answer to uh, uh, one of the sevens who talked to me earlier about me saying, divide the day into morning, afternoon, and evening. And only give one of the three to the productivity that you just really struggle with and leave room in the other two for you to refuel yourself or re-energize yourself for what you know you have to do. Does that help? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's, that's really helpful. I think the one thing that popped into mind as a follow-up is sometimes how do you communicate that boundary to other people who then think like, oh, you know, you're, you're too, that's like an unreasonable request or you're so difficult or, or whatever like that. Like, how do you communicate yeah. it? Because I think sometimes that the self-management can be easier, but then to get other people to also like, okay, be okay with that. Sometimes that is a challenge. Well, you know, I think we have to teach other people how we see. You know, once you know the Enneagram, you can never unknow it, right? Like, once you see people based on these nine numbers, then that's just how you see. What you have to imagine is the people who don't know the Enneagram think we're all the same. They think you're just like them. They think you see the way they see and that you're just not pulling your part of the load or you're just... There's just something weird about you. So two things I want to tell you about that. One is you have to teach people how you see the world. They don't know unless you teach them. Second, I tend to say to people, I'd like to talk to you about something. I'd like to sit down and talk to you about something. But I want us to agree that we're not going to end the conversation unless it's on a good note. And then try really hard to just use I statements. I see the world this way. And that makes these things very difficult for me. But I know I have to do them. And I'm willing. So I'm going to 
try to do them in a certain part of my day and just continue to say, wow, is that how you see that? That's not how I see that at all. And I think we have to teach people how to treat us. You know, they don't know that we're not them. And uh, here's the last thing I have to say, and I, I hope it's affirming for you. Lots of young fours come up to me and say, nobody gets me. And when I first started teaching 25 years ago, I used to say, oh, they do. They just don't know how to show you they do. And I stopped that a long time ago because people don't get you. You're the most complex number on the Enneagram. You see in ways that are so expansive that some numbers will never look at a sunset and see what you see. They will never read a poem and hear what you hear. They'll never read a book and fall in love with a character like you did. It won't happen because that's your unique fourness, and it's beautiful. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thanks, Suzanne. Yeah. Hello, uh, DX here. I'm a nine. So uh, as you said, like once you kind of know the anagram, you can't really uh, not know it. Right. So after I got the anagram, it's kind of a rude awakening. I say that uh, because I kind of start to see things that are non-negotiable in my life instead of assimilating with everything and saying yes. So since then, I've kind of like to find, to find myself, I always feel like I have to be in, I have to recognize my anger and, and dislikes a lot more. Like I have to kind of amplify them to be more sensitive to them. But I also feel that uh, now I feel like I'm a bit more angry all the time and uh, assertiveness, trying to be more assertive and aggressive just doesn't, isn't a <laughs> very good feeling all the time. Uh, I, I guess it's to work towards a long-term peace, but uh, yeah, it's not comfortable or I don't know if it's healthy. Because generally, as a, I'm a teacher, generally I try to uh, embrace my students once like their desires and the directions they want to go uh for for what they want to do right what are their motivations instead of going the negative route to say that oh we're going to find our way by the things that we don't want right so i feel that the anger part is kind of like finding my way through all the no's all the no 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 because it's too easy for a nine to assimilate with all the everything else and say yes uh first of all be nice to yourself just be nicer to you. Secondly, I bet you're not any more angry than you used to be. My guess is you're just more aware of your anger than you used to be. So now that you're aware of it, you have to decide whether or not you want to um, work on these three things or not those three and these three because you can't work on all of it at one time. And the inclination with nines is all or nothing. I'm going to change everything and do all of this and everything's going to be peaceful or I'm not going to change anything. So let me tell you, uh, Russ Hudson, who I just was talking about, who taught with us uh, recently, he um, told me that he uh, thinks that we uh, have to change how we talk about nines and instead of talking about sloth, that we need to talk about resignation, that nines are resigned 
to the way things are. And that is not necessary. And it's not helpful. So don't allow yourself to fall into resignation. Because that will make you angry. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Keep talking. You, you want more? Like, do you have oh. another question or a follow-up on that? Because I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're asking. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the perspective that's needed. Uh, it's not not to say no, but and also not to resign to that. And also, the the revelation that you've just given me is like I have to change everything instead, or, or it's all or nothing. Uh, that kind of seems to be the case for everything that I kind of want to start to do. Uh, I always have to set everything up and do things my way. Oh well. <laughs> well, you know that's because nines are the most stubborn number on the enneagram. So there, there you have that. But it's also because you have uh, not much energy. You have the least energy of all the numbers on the Enneagram. And, you know, I can't imagine how angry I would be if I had to boundary myself internally so I wouldn't cause trouble and if I had to put boundaries around myself externally so other people couldn't steal my peace. You know what I'm saying? That's a full-time job, and it's exhausting. So you need to kind of find a more peaceful path for you. And I think you can do that by being willing to take incremental steps as part of a process rather than that I want to do this and I don't want to do this. That kind of dualistic thinking won't help. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Hey, uh, I'm Eva. I'm a six. Uh, I think it's really cool how you actually talked about the resignation of a, a, a nine. Um, I've been feeling, in trying to move into a healthy, my healthy number, I've been feeling um, like I'm caring less and I feel a lot of resignation. So do you have any advice on how, as a six, to move into a space of a, a nine that doesn't feel like a decline? Sure. So it's possible. Well, first of all, I have a new book coming out November 2nd, and it answers that question. So there's a, it's a much deeper dive than the first two books. But it's possible when you're stressed to go to the low side of the stress number. That's the general understanding. But it's possible to go to the high side of the stress, the healthy side too. And it's possible to go to the healthy side of nine or the unhealthy side of nine. And what I think happens to sixes when they go to nine that's uh, disconcerting is that they don't have as much anxiety because they don't have as much fear. And it feels empty rather than peaceful. Does that ring true for you? Yes. Yeah. And it's not emptiness that's there. It's a lack of anxiety that's there. And so I think you need to kind of pay attention to how much you're actually choosing because my guess is you're choosing more than you think you are and that you are not as disconnected as you seem to feel. But in fact, you're just not constantly anxious because you're living into... Things are just not that bad. Anxiety is energy producing. So when I flip this and when I talked about 
to nines about the good thing that happens when they go to six? It's because anxiety makes us act. And in nine, for you, a lack of anxiety keeps us from acting too quickly and too much. So it's spacious, but it's something that you have to get used to. You just have to get used to it. I think the Dalai Lama is a nine on the Enneagram. And I could be wrong, but I, I don't think I am. And I think reading the Dalai Lama helps get me to a place where I recognize that there is a depth there that you have to receive. It doesn't jump up and show itself to you. And I think when six goes to nine, there's a depth there that you receive. And it's very different from being in average six space and anxious. So how do I move into a space where I feel at peace rather than um, resignation? Like how, yeah. like how do I shift? Right. Well, the problem is you want to make that happen and you can't. You have to observe yourself until you're aware that it is happening. It's very difficult for all of us to know where we want to go and not just get there. And so one of the things that we talk about a lot and that I talk about a lot in Enneagram work is that we have to allow enough of our personality to fall away in order to be a little healthier and a little healthier and a little healthier. And so I think it would, it would be good for you to do a word study between the difference in anxiety and fear, the difference in... Uh, Emptiness and peace, the difference in fullness and value. You know, if we're full and busy and we have a lot to do, then it feels like we're valuable. And resting is just a big part of the whole deal. And nines know how to just be. And for every other number on the Enneagram, it's very uncomfortable until we accept that we don't need to be doing all of the time and that there is such a thing as active waiting, active listening, active, active. It's just that it's not with the overlay of six anxiety. I hope that helps a little. Yes, that, thank you so much. That 369 triangle on the center of the Enneagram is just really hard. And so what happens to you as a six is now you're trying to, because you're in the thinking triad, you're trying to overthink what happens when you're in nine instead of experience being in nine. See the difference? And that's okay. It's just another step in the journey. I'm, I'm not at all worried about you figuring it out. If that's the question you're asking, you'll get the answer. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Hi, Susan. Hi. Uh, so my name is Venia. I'm a two also. Um, I want to ask, I guess, like a specific, I guess, two question. Yeah. So um, I realized I realized that as a tool, like I think upon knowing that sometimes I might kind of fall into people pleasing as I help people. So that revelation was quite shocking to me. I didn't know that. But like, I think when you said it in videos, I realized that, oh, yeah, like, that's true. Yeah. But yeah. 
to my point is, I think upon knowing that I fall into people pleasing, like I start to question my, I start to question my own intentions a lot before I help people. So I kind of like slow down, like kind of like uh, question my intention before I think I jump in to help. But I think I, I, I sometimes fall into the other end of this spectrum where I just end up like not doing anything at all. And I just feel like there's an unrest in me when I'm just extremely passive about things. Yep. So I don't, I don't really know how to find the balance because I could go to the end where I'm just constantly questioning my own motivation sure. and intentions and feel very paralyzed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's what I would suggest. Um, here's the problem with you and me. We want to be loved, but we settle for appreciation. And they're not the same thing. And people-pleasing gives us lots and lots of appreciation. When we help people, they're grateful, and we think they love us for that, and then they don't. And then my language for what you're describing, I think what you're describing in my language is this. I help and help and help and help, and then I feel taken for granted because other people aren't that generous in trying to help me. Or they take for granted that I help them and they don't seem to really uh, appreciate that I had to give up something to be helpful to them. And so when I feel taken for granted, then I just shut down. When I feel taken for granted, I just, I say, that's it. I'm done. I'm just not going to help anybody. Nobody's paying attention to me. I'm just not going to help anymore. And that lasts about 16 hours and then I start helping somebody else again. So I think the first thing we have to do is we have to know the difference between love and appreciation and know that what we're really seeking is to be loved. And secondly, I think we have to be very careful that we do only what is ours to do. Because some people push back push back from us because we overgive or because we give so much they don't think they can give that amount back to us. So it's a matter of knowing what's yours to do. At the end of the day, that's the question. It, 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 and and the, the questions I ask myself are, why am I moving toward this other person? What, if anything, do I expect to get in return? And does the other person want my help? And I've helped a lot of people who didn't want my help. I've helped a lot of people wanting something in return. And I've helped a lot of people not knowing what my motivation was for doing it. And when I consistently ask myself those three questions, when I stop myself before I volunteer, step up, say I'm going to take care of something, and give myself time to breathe, then I make better choices. And then I end up getting away from that all or nothing because I'm doing what's mine to do and I'm leaving for other people what is theirs to do. Uh, We have time for one last question before we start moving into the last segment for for the morning for us. So, yep, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Ami. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for doing this. Uh, My name is Kai. I'm a type 7. And... For a seven, I really struggle with motherhood a lot. I always think that um, 
I'm not a good mom. And once I started learning Enneagram, I, I think I reconciled with many things and also more compassion to myself. Um, my son um, is a preteen now. And I think with the Enneagram, it also helps me to see things his way and actually help me with my relationship with him a lot. And so now he's on his journey of finding out more about himself. My question is, um, as a parent, how do I introduce Enneagram to my preteen child? And are there any resources out there that are meant for children or preteens? Thank you. I'm, I'm afraid you're not going to like my answer. So I hope you can still love me. Um, I don't think uh, we should introduce the Enneagram to preteens. And I know that people are. And I know that the Enneagram is very trendy. But preteens are inclined to um, choose a number that their friends say they are or acquiesce to the number their parent thinks they are. And so I think what you can do um, is um, you can figure out what stance he's in. Is it, It's a boy, right? Your son. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think you probably know him well enough to know what stance he's in. And when you know that, then the best gift you have to give to him is asking him the question for the stance. So if you think he's a one, a two, or a six, without doing too much Enneagram talking with him, you might just begin to say, uh, well, what do you think about that when he's talking with you? Or... What are you thinking about when he's not talking to you? <laughs> uh, if you think he's a three or a seven or an eight, then the question obviously was, well, what are your feelings about that? And for a four, five, or nine, well, what are you, what are you thinking about doing about that? What are you planning to do about that? And I, I also think that regardless of the age of your children, they can really benefit from the lost and unconscious childhood messages. So you can check those and be sure that you're giving him the lost messages and that you're not playing into those unconscious messages that he picked up somewhere but not necessarily from you. I think by the time uh, he's 16, that's a good time to really introduce the Enneagram. But prior to then, you just have to know yourself for a while. And, and once you... Um, are introduced to a number, then you feel like you can't let go of it because you were wrong, and it's just very messy. I do think you can talk about yourself and how you see the world and about what it's like for you to be an Enneagram 7, and if he says, well, what number do you think I am? Then show him the lists that are in the path between us, not the lists that are in the road back to you. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't have the answer that I think you wanted, but I think that's the best answer. Yeah, no, this is great. Okay. I, I think, yeah, I do not want him to be, you know, get too much into like, this is my type and therefore this is my behavior that's and so right. I'm going to behave like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good plan. And if he's around people who are talking about the Enneagram all the time, which kids often are, then just say, why don't you just keep listening? See, this person says they're this number, and I'm this number, and this person says they're that number. Why don't you just kind of watch them, see if you think that might be you? Right. Thank you. Sure. 
Very cool. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who asked questions. Um, one of my huge worries, like uh, planning this, was that Singaporeans were going to do their shy thing and then not say anything. So thank you for proving me wrong. Thank you for having such thoughtful, such honest, such open questions and for just opening yourselves up. Um, so Suzanne and uh, Joel have uh, said that they're actually very curious about how uh, the anagram shows up in the Singapore context. So I think this would be a great time to open it up to uh, Suzanne and team to ask us questions. And uh, maybe just before that, I can just give a little bit of a, a context setter. So Singapore is a, is used to be a British colony. So um, we have a colonial, a colonial past. Uh, we are made up of uh, largely Asian race, races. So we have uh, uh, Chinese immigrant grandparents, uh, Malayan immigrant parents, uh, Indian immigrant parents, and a smattering of uh, Eurasian you know, uh, mixes in the country. Um, we are very compliant as a nation. Um, we have a lot of people, like for example, in the pandemic, you know, with all the with all the restrictions and all the rules, uh, Singaporeans have largely been very compliant with it, um, and which is great because in a in a season like this, I think it's important to keep everybody safe. Uh, we do occasionally have, you know, the the you know people who who rebel against it, but they're very quickly addressed um, and very quickly put in a place. Um, I think Singapore uh, largely has seen the anagram come in uh, through the corporate route. So I think it was largely used as uh, a, a way to develop the leadership. And I think only recently it started like coming into the, um, into the regular population, if I could say. And uh, lastly, I think Singapore has not always been very aware of mental health. And only recently we have been paying a lot more attention to it, uh, you know, because of the pandemic and also because of certain incident, you know, rather violent incidences that have happened in Singapore. So I think we are only now starting to sit up and notice it. Yeah, but please go ahead and ask us questions. We are very happy to contribute to your curiosity about us. My first question uh, is just to circle back regarding male and female eights, and it sounds like the situation is very much the same there as here, that there is just a greater appreciation for male eights and female eights need to tone it down a little bit. might be uh, the way it would be referred to kindly here. Um, is that correct? Like, is that what you would say? And is there a generational difference? Was it, is it easier for a woman in Singapore who is an eight now than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago? Mm, um, I'm an eight, so I can speak to that. Um, I do, at least in my own experience, I don't feel the pushback so much, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also because I grew up in a family that was very appreciative of my strengths as an eight. Um, I was very celebrated for uh, being able to get things done, you know, being a, uh, being bossy, being take charge, I was uh, accepted for it. Um, out in the world, I did have some pushback, but 
you know, because I had such a strong uh, acceptance at home, I was just like, well, this is your problem and this, you know, but I do think um, I have met a lot of female aides in, in, you know, facilitating the program. And um, I have noticed that um, female aides, there are quite a lot of female aides, and I do see that they are quite accepting of their strengths. Um, I don't know whether it's because we are an immigrant society, uh, you know, or our grandparents were, were immigrants, but there's this very, um, there's this sense of, there's this appreciation for people who get things done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's my personal experience. I don't know if that is across the board with all female aides, yeah. And, and what about generationally? Is Was it harder, do you think, to be a female eight 40 years ago than it is now? Mm, I don't know. I think because of the immigrant uh, thing, mm -hmm. I would like to say that, you know, our our mothers and grandmothers were quite, you know, they needed to be quite hard. A lot of them came to Singapore uh, solo. Some of them came alone. Mm -hmm. uh, not all of them came with their families. Um, so, um, for example, we have we have entire classes of women who came to Singapore as like uh, physical laborers, mm -hmm. you know, or as uh, you know, as women who who became maids in you know uh, richer households, and they swore off having uh, you know romantic relationships or getting married, you know. So, so there's this very strong independent mm -hmm. uh, vibe that is I don't know. Um, known or accepted you know but that's what I'm noticing so I don't know uh I think my grandmother was was probably a dependent son so I don't think I can really speak into that in in my own family experience of the older generation sure. not sure if I can offer a, a perspective as well yeah as a male aide. um so I've, I've got a response to maybe two of your questions firstly as a male aide, um, I do experience um a little bit of pushback in a context when uh, a lot more feminine energy may be a little bit more um celebrated like church for instance for instance um so i i've experienced quite a lot of pushback um and in times even rejection uh, in those kinds of contexts um at work and work context i think i i i do see that's also to be true, especially in context where people want to be uh, a lot more accepting of um, of diversity and things like that. So when you show up strong in a cultural context like this, it may not may not be fully accepted. But I, that that's not to to discount any of the experiences that female aides experience. You talk about uh, the U.S. being you know a three country. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear what y'all say Singapore is. I, I think that uh, Singapore has six tendencies. The fear element. Yeah, I think we're quite fearful. <laughs> interesting. That's very interesting. Do you think the, the United States is a three country? Um, I guess progressive, like. They want to move forward and progress forward and uh how do I say be more academic? Yeah. Yeah. The chat is saying all I'm all I'm seeing is six and one for Singapore in the chat. Sixes and ones. Well, I 
you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think there's some value in understanding how people see, right? And I think there's some um, value in the history that y'all have talked about it some, the history that makes us who we are and in some ways forms how we see things. I definitely think the United States is a three country and uh, um, I would just say that whether or not you're a one or a six country and whether or not we're a three country, there's a good side and a bad side to every single personality type. The thing that I'd like for us all to think about in relationship to countries, as I heard somebody say earlier that y'all are kind of wondering what number of different countries are, is that just keep in mind that the, the best part of you is also the worst part of you. And that's true for us as individuals. And then that's also true for us as a business or a community or a country. And looking at both sides of that will help us perhaps begin to understand one another better individually and as countries. And this is such a bold statement. I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I do wonder if world peace doesn't lie in us understanding that we're just not all the same and we don't see things the same way and there are at least other eight ways of looking at everything. And if we could make room for that, I just think we could do so much better. And I know I already said it, but I just like you guys a lot. I loved my time with you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Suzanne. Thank you.